recorded live from the WAYOFM.org studios here in the fabulous Federal Building in Rochester, New York. Welcome to Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her, and Penny is joining us via Zoom from, well, where the heck are you, Penny? I'm in a secure, undisclosed location. What? Are you off someplace doing some sort of storytelling show? No, I'm at home. I... I slipped on the ice and I hurt my back. I, I spent all night flat on my back. No sex jokes, Amy. Okay, no sex jokes. I'm sorry that you hurt yourself, but I spent last night on a wonderful date with my girlfriend. We had dinner, drinks, and saw a great drag show. Dinner, drinks, and drag? I don't know who goes out more. You or my back. So who's there in the studio with you, Amy? Well, today I have Jen Lunsford in the studio with us, an attorney here in Rochester. She'll be talking about her run for the 135th Assembly District, as well as her activism and health care law. Well, I'll need to talk to her because this much back pain should be illegal. We'll be right back after the traditional music swell and fade out. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loonie, and a few British tenors from when I was in London, because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one. The coins. Money. About how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses, and by going to TransformationThursday.com, they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh, God, I hope so. Okay, then. TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure. I can get that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her as well. Our guest today is Jen Lunsford, who has quite the resume. Jen lives in Penfield with her husband, Scott Hildebrandt. Jen's from Long Island, but after a stint as a paralegal in Los Angeles and law school at Boston University, she and Scott came here to Scott's hometown to take a position at Seeger and Shortino, where she advocates for people at some of the most difficult times in their lives. Jen volunteers at a local crisis nursery as well as volunteering her legal services. Jen has dedicated her legal career to helping the injured and disabled people. She also serves as the co-chair of Lawyers for Good Government, a progressive legal activist group, and sits on the board of the Anthony Polesevich Memorial Foundation, which helps families of young children diagnosed with cancer. But my first question for you, Jen, is can you help Amy get her facial surgery covered by insurance? Because the one she has now is killing me. Oh, Jen, you know you don't have to answer that. In 2018, Jen ran for the New York State Senate, and that was in a district where the incumbent Republican ran unopposed in 2016, and she lost by less than four points. Jen's running again this year, but this time she's running for state assembly. It's going to be a very competitive race in the 30 in, a, in the 135th district, rather, against incumbent Mark Johns. With Jen strong showing in 2018, this is definitely a race that will be competitive and worth keeping an eye on as we get closer to election day. Welcome to our show, Jen. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Oh We're my happy, gosh, after too. all those retakes, are you sure you want to stick around? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've dealt with worse, it's fine. <laughs> I sure hope not, but okay. So, you know, Jen, thanks for coming in on a lovely Sunday night here in Rochester. But, you know, 
why don't you just give us some quick background? You know, we gave a little bit here in our intro, but who's Jen Lunsford and why are you running for office? It seems like a crazy thing to do in this age. It's a crazy thing to do in this age, but I think particularly for someone like me who has continued to work as a full-time litigator and has a very small child. When I announced in 2018, my son was 15 months old. He's three now, so he is potty trained and can use a spoon. So at this point, I think it's just easy street. Yeah, you, you have a lot yeah. more free time. They're, they're, self, they're, they're self-directing after that, you know? They I mean, got he's a spoon halfway there. Gone. It's fine. Yeah. The other day he said uh, he doesn't know how to steer or put the key in the ignition. And I was like, well, hang on. <laughs> We're still working on like getting your pants all the way pulled up after the potty. So. Yeah, I don't know how to do those things either, so he's in good company. At least he's taking them down first. It's true. <laughs> baby steps. Yeah, uh, ba that's exactly what they are because it's a baby. Yeah, you're still running for a legislative, uh, the, the 135th. Where is the 135th? Because I don't really have the New York State legislative map memorized. Why so. not? Mm -hmm. that's, that's my <laughs> hobby is knowing yeah. okay. where the districts are. Uh, so the uh, 135th is Webster, Penfield, East Rochester, and Parenton. That overlaps the 55th where I ran last time in all um, three towns except for Webster. Um, so I had uh, Penfield, East Rochester, and Parenton in the 55th. Um, I made the decision to transition my race earlier uh, this month because we have a competitive primary for the 55th seat with a, a qualified candidate who's fundraising well and is a woman and is a woman of color. And I don't see a lot of value in knocking out other competitive candidates, particularly when they're women, when we can run two strong women next to each other. I ran for office because I answered a call to action. Someone had recruited me. They'd asked me to run. In fact, the average woman has to be asked seven times to run for office. I had to be asked about 70 times from everyone, cousins, family, um, friends, people in my community. Uh, even sometimes my clients were saying, why don't you run for office? And then eventually I found my way over to the MCDC. I got recruited to run for 55. And then earlier this month, some people were saying, you know, why don't you run for assembly? Because we need a strong candidate in that district. It seems like a good fit for you as a homeowner in Penfield. You have strong ties to that community, whereas the candidate for the 55th does not. Um, let's see what we can do. And I was like, you know, I'm in this to serve the community. I'm in this to be of service. And if this is the way I can best serve my community, then that's what I'm going to do. And if memory serves me right, Jen, in those communities, you did very well in the 55th in, when, when you're coming out of the 2018 election for that. So, I mean, if history is any indication, you are a great, strong candidate, you know, and I think where you I think the Ontario County was the section that, you know, finally put it over the top for Senator Funky. Indeed. Yeah, I actually I won Monroe County by a little over 51 percent. And that was in 18 where Democratic turnout is suppressed. We have a um, in the 135th. It's more purple than the 55th. But even in the 55th, people think of that as a blue seat. It's actually not. Only 40% of the electorate in the 55th is Democrat. The rest is independent blanks and Republicans. So you really have to find candidates who can build that bridge and who can create a compelling message for people who don't necessarily fit into column A or column B. Um, and in the 135th, it's a little bit tighter. We don't have as much of a blue advantage, but we have 25,000 independents and blanks. So in a blank, yeah. for those who don't know, is someone who's not registered to either party. And, and you've got an advantage, too, because, you know, looking at your platform, the, the things that you're, you're, you're stressing are fairly universal, like health care. That's something that everyone that resonates with everyone. So that's a that's a great platform to, to run on. And especially with your background, uh, because as, as a uh, health care lawyer, uh, not health care, but health insurance, you're, you're, that's that's your legal field as well. Right. Yes. Uh, in addition to being an attorney who focuses on injured and disabled people, I had a healthcare law focus in law school where I was the note editor on the American Journal of Law and Medicine. I took numerous courses in health law. I worked for a consulting agency that um, did some work before Obama was elected on what the ACA would look like when it eventually rolled out. I deal with all kinds of competing health insurers, Medicare, Medicaid, no-fault workers' compensation. I'm very, very familiar with the way our healthcare system operates, the way it fails people, and the way it could be better. And that's why I've made healthcare a, a primary platform, both in 18 and in 2020. You have a personal connection to that, too. Uh, your father was, uh, he had asthma, as you do, right? Oh, yes. 
And so that was, and he had COPD. Mm -hmm. Could you explain what COPD is and how hard was it for, uh, for him to get the health care that he needed uh, as, as he neared the end of his life? Sure thing. So uh, COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. And uh, that is a condition that often afflicts people who um, grow up with asthma and then maybe don't take the best care of themselves or heavy smokers like my father was. My father was a Vietnam War vet. And he had a number of health problems. Uh, he had congestive heart failure. He'd had a heart attack. He'd had issues um, with uh, respiration as well. And when he left his job in retail, uh, he had no insurance. He was actually paying for my mom's COBRA, even though they were divorced, because he, for some reason, just didn't feel like he should go to the VA. And I, I don't know why. I had to really push him to do it. And I was like, you served in 1965 Vietnam, you fought at Le Drang. Go get your health care, man. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. are you doing? But we eventually went. And if it wasn't for the VA, I don't think my father would have walked me down the aisle. I don't think he would have seen me graduate from law school. And it was because he had access to uh, insurance that had no premium and little to no out-of-pocket cost for him. And I think that that's a, it's a human right and it's something that everybody deserves. And, I and think is that sort of where you're coming from with your healthcare platform? Absolutely, yes. I, I believe that healthcare is a human right and that we need to ensure that people are not making healthcare decisions based on whether or not they can afford it. Well, now, how much, I'm sorry, now how much of that is uh, stuff that you can control on a state level? Uh, well, it all depends on the way you approach it. I've been a proponent of the New York Health Act, which is a single-payer healthcare system that has been proposed for uh, a number of years now. There actually are enough votes in the Senate and the Assembly to pass that bill, and the Assembly has passed it before. The hang-up so far has been uh, getting it brought to the Senate floor. And um, actually, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. The, the Assembly's actually voted on it. I know that they have the votes. They may have not actually, not actually taken a vote, so that could be incorrect. Um, we'll have to research that and yeah. hold you to it. <laughs> um, but I do know that there are enough votes for it. Um, but I know that there's a lot of uh, hesitancy coming from the governor's office about getting that vote signed in because the reality is with a single payer healthcare system, if we're going to get a little bit into the weeds, <laughs> is there's a number of factors that have to um, fall in line before you can make that work, which includes things like getting Medicare and Medicare, Medicare and Medicaid waivers uh, from the federal government to convert that money into money that can be used in the state care, uh, the state plan, uh, the upfront cost, which likely requires some borrowing for the rollout and the rollout right now under the bill that's uh, been put up by uh, Assemblyman Gottfried is um, a four-year rollout. I think that's a little bit aggressive. We probably need something more like a six-year rollout and it would be a considerable upfront cost. But over time, single-payer healthcare systems are a more efficient way to deliver uh, medical care. They're uh, less costly for both the healthcare system and the people receiving the care. And they just make economic sense if you can accept that they're going to cost more right away. Well, and I think for working people, that makes a big difference as well, because, you know, I, for a lot of years, a solid middle-income family, um, you know, middle, solid middle-income, I don't want to get into the details with finances, but, you know, when you have an $11,000 family deductible, mm -hmm. you don't go to the doctor, you don't get a CT scan, you don't do this. So, I mean, how... How can you make that case to the business owner of why or and the taxpayer of why this is a better choice for them? I'm going to tell you that on an individual level, it takes very little educating on this issue to convert people, even um, business owners, because business owners recognize that they will get to stop paying for health care from oh. the insurance companies that they themselves will stop paying for their own health care costs. The way the New York Health Act is funded is through a progressive payroll tax. And while that uh, does mean that there would be less money coming from your paycheck, there'd be more money in your pocket because the money that you spend on health care through premiums and co-pays would be more than the taxes that are taken out. Well, and I think the other thing with that too is, you know, I've made this argument for a long time that our society, where, where did health insurance become this business thing where now, you know, what could this do for entrepreneurs who want to start a small business but don't have to be worried about finding health care for their family? And then B, if they do become successful, 
adding that expensive layer of health care to their business and taking that away from their bottom line. That is absolutely an enormous benefit of this, is that people who are working a particular job just because that's the job that provides insurance. Or we have parents who... Uh, are paying more for childcare than they're getting in oh, that's insane. payroll, but because they're the insurance carrier, they keep working. And you see it all the time, the kinds of par- bargains people have to make to hold their insurance. And insurance, sometimes it's not even great. My son and my husband are uh, enrolled on his healthcare plan at th- through my husband's employer because my family healthcare plan is so expensive, even though my husband's is high deductible. So, you know, towards the end of last year, you know, my son had a little bit of a cold, had a little bit of of a fever. I'm a lawyer married to a program manager. And even I was like 80 bucks, you know, uh, is this, is this fever doctor worthy? And how many people are making that decision when it's even more serious? You know, my father didn't go to the emergency room for four days after his heart attack because he didn't want to pay the copay. But insurance is crazy because I'm on a medicine right now. Before I had insurance, it was $105 with insurance. Without insurance, it was 145 And then now through this prescription card that I found online, I just paid $45 for the same prescription. So there's all these games in healthcare mm-hmm. and insurance that are back and forth. So I think that would just streamline everything for everybody. And I know Penny has a question, so we're going to toss it back over to Penny's undisclosed location. <laughs> well, well, yeah, my undisclosed location, I have a, I have a very selfish mm-hmm. um question because I, I want to talk about uh, health care for the LBGTQ community, mm-hmm. specifically for trans transgender people who have to oftentimes go through so many hoops in mm-hmm. order to uh, get the health care that we need, which is really life-saving health care. Are, are you addressing that at all with your health care plan? Um, I, as I sit here right now, cannot recall whether the health care uh, whether the New York Health Act expressly covers all aspects of things like gender reassignment surgery, but as it pertains to other kinds of healthcare that are important to the LGBT community, um, screenings and mental health and a supportive hormone therapy, I believe that it does. Uh, and there is a lot of room, I think, for um, adding on services as they are con- deemed medically necessary, which I would consider, you know, after you know, years of. Um, treatment, something like gender reassignment surgery to be. Uh, I also am a proponent of including right now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, at the end of the term in 17, as we went into 18, no, I guess it would have been the 2018 term. New York state passed a law that required uh, health insurers to include infertility treatments for uh, people who were medically infertile. And that only applied to heterosexual couples. It did not apply to same-sex couples. How does that happen in this day and age in this state? It, that's what—that's the sausage machine. <laughs> that's what happens when you go in and you need the votes. And that was how they cut that down the line. And I know that that's something that's being brought up now to try to expand that. I've had a friend of mine actually come to me as an attorney and say, you know, can we bring a, a due process challenge to that? And I think you could. Um, because if somebody's medically infertile, I don't think it matters how it is they intend to become fertilized <laughs> if they, you know. Um, and I, I don't know that that would withstand a legal challenge, frankly. Um, but I would like to make sure that that's a thing that gets included in any healthcare plan moving forward. And even if it's not included in the healthcare plan, that that's just an issue we address with regard to that particular bill, which is generally referred to as the um, IVF mandate. Well, and I think this goes back from a transgender perspective as well. Like, you know, our opening question that Penny had that, you know, we asked you not to answer, but, you know, last... <laughs> but, uh, no, I want you, actually, I want you to answer it. Can you fix her face? Yeah, can, you, <laughs> can you just do it with a quick right hook? <laughs> I think you're beautiful. Thank you. Yes. I, you know, and I do too, but, you know, but I don't have full cisgender passing privilege mm-hmm. yet. And... And unfortunately, I have been verbally harassed a couple of times. Mm. A week and a half ago, I'm in a restaurant that I go to on a fairly regular basis, at least two, three times a month for lunch. I walk in, this lady turns around, stares at me, looks at her, whoever she's with, some guy, I've been going to assume based on his look. And she turns around, looks at me again, looks over at him, says something. I couldn't, it wasn't audible to me. She turns around and starts staring at me for a third time. I just politely looked at her and said, it's not polite to stare. And she's like, excuse me, it's not polite to stare. So my thing with 
my surgery that I'm talking about is called facial feminization surgery. I view this as not only something to make myself more a little bit more beautiful because I think I am a pretty woman. Mm-hmm. I have a pretty girlfriend that will agree with that. Penny agrees with it. My parents. Now eh. you're just bragging. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> but but at the same time, I don't have the full cis passing privilege, and so those moments are dysphoric causing. My safety is important if I've been, you know, verbally and physically harassed a couple times for being transgender. You know, and, you know, even though we live in New York State, and I've had to explain this to people around the country and around the world that I interact with, I go 15, 20 minutes either way of us from downtown Rochester here. I'm in some very rural areas that could be very dangerous for me. I don't even think you need to get rural for it to be dangerous for yeah, you. And I, I think true. this is the unfortunate uh, reality of uh, uh, existing. I work in Greece and I'm always worried about that. Yep. Of existing in the world as a woman, because it's not even just about having, you know, cis passing privileges. It's about maybe you are a woman who, uh, just appears more masculine. I have a couple friends who uh, they gender express in clothing and then they choose not to wear makeup and they tend to look a little bit more masculine and they get harassed in the bathroom even though they are uh, otherwise cisgendered and choosing to express themselves in style in a oh, masculine way. We must have the same friends. Or God forbid, maybe you're just not the world's most attractive woman and you have to exist in a world that judges you for that. Or you're a very attractive woman and you exist in the world where people judge you for that. It is, it's a very, very fine line to walk for anyone living as a woman. I can tell you that as a, as a girl who was five foot five and a B cup when she was 12, I have been dealing with this for quite some time. Well, and, you know, but that's also, I mean, and I learned this very quick and I've mentioned this in other podcasts on, in our show and over the years is, you know, my first time I went to a meeting as Amy, I was quickly dismissed, probably one for being a woman and two for being transgender. And then one time I posted a picture online, I was showing a little bit of cleavage and I actually had a friend of mine. He replied back in the comments, oh, you shouldn't be showing cleavage. That's not very ladylike. <sighs> You know, thank you for the mansplaining. So I've had that too. I, for, with me, it was leg because, Mm -hmm. uh, I I tend to do that a little more than, uh, than, than others. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've got that. That's, and I'm like, well, I was wearing as a guy, I would wear shorts that were shorter than the leg that I was showing yet. That's an issue. I just have a hard time with, and this is just across the board. And it's really not a question. It's just a comment, I guess, just the objectification Mm-hmm. Uh, of, of of women and the objectification of transgender people as well. And that's just something that we're going to have to deal with. That's not something you can legislate, though. No, no. I, I frequently find myself giving the answer that I cannot legislate away the heart of men. It's it's the way society views us. And it's, it's not just men, it's women, too. I think oh, sometimes it's... some of the worst judgment comes from women. I'll tell you, you know, to bring this back to my son a little bit, as a working mom, I have had more questions and comments about how I'm going to do this thing where I go to Albany and who's going to be taking care of my kid. And I'm like, I don't know, his dad, the other parent in our house who's taking care of him right now. Yeah. yeah. The daycare that he goes to because I work and so does my husband. But this idea that if my husband was running, no one would be asking him those questions. No, definitely not. There's an enormous amount of expectation on people, uh, particularly women and particularly I think um, younger women who are uh, expected to project ourselves in a way that is not threatening, but also assertive and not sexual, but also pretty. And if we are failing in any one of those regards, we are subject to derision. Absolutely. And and the other thing about it is the reverse of that. Like who's going to watch your your child. Yes, there is a there's a there's another partner there and just because it's a man does not mean that he is not a parent. And that's the I still remember hearing that about, you know, every time I helped out with my kids when I was married about, you know, father pitching in. I wasn't pitching in. I was being a parent. And yet that still is, yeah, I'm not babysitting. Right, exactly. I'm, I'm being a parent. I am parenting. And yet that belief that because uh, it's a man doing it or someone presenting male in my case, that it was somehow not not my job to do that. And I and think, it, you know, oh, go ahead, Benny. 
No, no, I was going to say, and it's, and it's, do you find that, I was going to try to segue, do you find that it's difficult even now as a woman to try and run for, for a public office? Is that, do you see it as a hindrance or a help um, or, or, or not a problem? Oh, I, I think it's, it's definitely more difficult, though I will say that I was very impressed with our community. I expected there to be some more um, overt sexism, and there wasn't. What I found was people treated me like I was adorable. I will be <laughs> I will be 38 in two weeks, and oh, I, you're so I look younger than that. Such a cute and 38. I, <laughs> I think uh, last uh, election, before the ravages of an election aged me 10 years, <laughs> I looked even younger. People routinely mistook me for someone in my 20s. And I think having a very young child contributed to that because people assume that if you have a toddler, you must be in your 20s and not that you had fertility problems and waited till you got out of law school and you were 34 when you had a kid. Uh, but I would knock on someone's door and I'd say, hi, my name's Jen Lunsworth. I'm going to be your state senator. And I'd hear, oh, oh, are you? Good for you. And I'm like, no, <laughs> really, I'm the designated Democratic candidate. And they would, I don't think they would have treated an older woman or a similarly aged man that way. So it wasn't that people didn't, um, that it's not that anyone said anything overtly sexist to me, but they treated me as a non-serious person. Yeah. And you're the second person to come on this podcast and, and say that. And I would also, you know, because the of the first being Rachel Barnhart, who yeah, is also, was, well, you know, she's experienced, yeah, so I think some more overt sexism than I have. Definitely. Yeah. You know, but I, you, but when you do social media posts on Twitter, Facebook, you know, what's that level of scrutiny like for you? Because, you know, Rachel, everything she posts, mm -hmm. especially on Twitter is heavily scrutinized. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm guessing you don't see it at that level, but is that going to be more scrutinized than your male counterpart? Um, I think so. I think it depends on um, what your race you're in, how big of a threat you are. The, uh, the Republicans weren't taking me seriously until around September of last year. And then they must have run a poll where I was winning because everything amped up tenfold. They went way, way, way back in my Twitter feed, started running uh, negative ads uh, about me on Facebook, uh, twisting things that I'd said. I have to be very careful about what I say. Um, but I, I always said I would never run for office because I was, um, I had what I call Joe Biden mouth. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> before I say things, but there, then <laughs> there's our sound bite. <laughs> that became um, authentic <laughs> and something people were looking for. And I was like, weird. Okay. And, and that's, I think a thing that people like about me. So I have just developed a very, very thick skin. Well, and I remember you running back in 2018 and let's be honest, Senator Funky put himself in some really bad positions leading up to the election in this area, in this community, parroting the Trump administration. Oh, it was so bad. It, it, no, Penny and I were on Evan Dawson the following week, and we reviewed the audio with Evan on connection. So, we, and I it made was infuriating. It was infuriating, and living in that district at the time, I made numerous phone calls to Senator Funky's office and voiced my displeasure. Voiced my displeasure at him about a year ago when he voted against the Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act. So, he is totally out of step with the national trend for suburban districts. Yeah. So I. I don't know. He doesn't deserve to keep his job and I'm happy he's retiring. Yeah, I think that, you know, when I was approaching that race, people thought of him as very, very popular and well-liked. And I'm like, well, that just people know his name and don't mistake name ID, which he had 94 percent name ID, which oh, is he was on TV for off 90 the years. charts like our, a very popular local politician maybe has 15 or 20 percent name recognition. So 94 is crazy. Um and people thought of him as like, the nice guy from the TV. And I was like, it's because you're not yeah. listening to what he says. He refused to debate me, understandably so. <laughs> and yeah, he, he didn't need to. I mean, that was... Yeah, yeah there, that's a thing. Yeah, there's nothing that he was going to get out of that because it would just make him look bad. He showed up at a forum at the University of Rochester. And it was me and him and Jeremy Cooney and Joe Robach. And we were asked a number of questions. And one of the questions was about gender. And the way the room was set up, it was... Um, a lecture hall. So there was, you know, kind of stadium seating and Joe Robach and Senator Funky had, um, kind of lined up their office right at eye level. So they were looking at people who agreed with them. 
And Senator Funky got like, oh, he got like 60% of the way through that question and he was doing okay. And he almost got out. And then he doubled back to be like, and about the bathroom thing. And I was like, oh my God, you almost got out, man. He did not look up where the entire back row of that room were clearly either transgendered people or LGBT supporting people. The entire row, I physically saw them react to that question. I was like, oh, you are not reading the room. He (laughs) did not know what had happened. And I was sitting there, you know, trying to be a professional person where like my team is like vibrating with excitement in their seat because he has said such a dumb thing. And uh, that then became a Facebook ad. It became a huge issue. There was eventually a rally in front of his office because of his comments. And when he eventually did vote on the Gender Non-Discrimination Act uh, later in uh, 2019, he really heard it from this community because it's mm-hmm. not... He kind of doubled down on that. He didn't? really did. Well, yeah. not, not only that, when I talked to his chief of staff, and, you know, and he was citing locker room concerns and everything like that. I'll tell you what, I, I joined... I joined a gym here. I don't want to name it just for the fact that, you know, I, because there are weird people out there in the world, but I go into the locker room. I go into the female locker room. I have boobs. I'm not going to go into the guy's locker room. I look more female than male at this point in my life. Nobody looks at me. Yeah. I go in, I change, I go work out, I leave. Yep. If I go to the bathroom, I shut the stall door behind me. I don't, I don't make a scene and nobody else cares. Yeah. The people are there to do the same thing. The safer place for you is in the female locker room. I also, whenever I hear people stories about that, the quote, like the bathroom, bathroom, (laughs) yeah, the last time I used the men's bathroom, it was uncomfortable. The bathroom arguments. I'm like, what do you think is happening in the ladies room? I think they all think there's urinals in the ladies room. I'm never clear about what they they think the concern is, but I'll I'll tell you a story about when I was 14, I was at, um, I went to a punk show because it was the 90s, and that's the kind of 14-year-old I was going to the punk shows. And uh, we were at a bar. Who's being recorded? Remember that. (laughs) (laughs) It was all ages, and um, there was a band playing, and uh, a person walked in, um, not gender-conforming, not cis-passing, wearing um, a very provocative mini dress, and... um, went to use the ladies' restroom. And I remember a huge to-do when the bouncer followed this person in and physically lifted them up and threw them out the door. And I was like, but where was that, where is that person supposed to go? I'm like, I'm looking at this room of punk rock kids and older adults. I'm like, that person cannot go in the men's room. That would be a much worse situation. I would much rather that person be in the restroom with me than what could happen to them in the men's room in this environment. And that was a moment that really solidified for me a desire to fight for people to have the right to be safe because they need to pee somewhere. I mean... Yeah, well, that's that's something that bringing up something that I want to talk about, and that is the proclivity of American politics to letting the GOP frame the narratives. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and the and what seems to be the democratic uh, willingness to meet them on their own ground, which is of course losing territory. Mm-hmm. You know, there this. I mean, going all the way back as, as far as I can remember, like not even farther than even um, Al Gore. With Al Gore invented the internet, he never said he invented the internet. He said he helped create it. And yet every yet there was always this chance of talking there was no chance to respond to that uh, how do you do that are you finding people are you finding like uh republican uh republicans trying to frame things in ways that are that that do not uh, do not put you in a good light and do you consciously like try to reframe the question i have to be careful about what i say because i can't leave open sound bites Like I've even already said something where I'm like, oh, you could cut that up and cut off the end of my sentence and make that a thing. And I already know that like because I took a breath in the middle of a sentence that part of it could be taken out of context and turned into whatever. And I just accept that's that's how I live. The reality is Republicans are much better at 
messaging than Democrats are. And I think that there's a variety of reasons for that. One of them being is that Democrats really care that we, un that we tell you how things work. I'm guilty of this too. I'm a full-blown nerd. I'm a real wonky person. And if you want to talk to me about a bill, I'm going to give you background and context and let you know why I think a change needs to be made and how I can make that change. And a Republican is going to get up and they're going to give you one sentence with some razzle-dazzle. And too many people are like, oh yeah, that sounds nice, even though it doesn't mean anything. And it ends up having the effect they don't want it to. You see that in uh, the abortion debate. You said, for example, pro-life. Man, did we lose messaging war when we lost pro-life. Um, the partial birth abortion ban. Partial birth abortion is not a medical procedure. There was literally a focus group where top Republican marketing people got together and said, what's most offensive to you? Partial birth abortion? Cool beans. That's what we're going to call a bill. And that's how they work. And I think a lot of people who um, identify more with conservative values tend to be motivated more by um, concerns about personal safety. So it's easy to say, um, I'll take you back to something happened in 2018 when Governor Cuomo was trying to enfranchise people who were serving parole. They were out of jail and they had not yet been paroled. And it wasn't until the end of parole when we give people who had been in jail their vote back. He said, well, you're out on parole. I'm going to give you your vote back. That was Democrats want felons to vote not people who have already served their time and are out should be able to vote, particularly because of the um, unique perspective they can give from having been in the prison system. You know? yeah, let's, let's, let's call it what it is. They're fear mongers. Yes. That's what they do. And it's, and they, the, they, they prey on emotion and they, I mean, I, I keep on going back to the uh, Aaron Sorkin line in An American President, where he's talking when what he's talking about his opponents is he has no he has no interest in telling you how to fix it. He's only interested in telling you who to blame for it. And, and so that's a hard thing to fight against. It's it's really hard to to try and frame things emotionally in a hopeful way and in a thoughtful way and in a way that says helping others helps yourself. It's, it's so difficult when, uh, you know, especially now in the day of social media and like, uh, Cambridge Analytica, like taking Facebook messages and basically using it to tailor fear driven messages to every individual person that they had data for on a person by person basis. So even if it's Amy and me looking at our Facebook posts, they, they will, they, they can figure out how to push Amy's fear buttons that are different than my fear buttons, even though we have so much in common. And trying to fight that has got to be exhausting. What's interesting is um, I think that there, well, people who identify with more conservative values tend to respond more to fear. People who identify with more liberal values respond to outrage. So the same fake Facebook post that would be for, say, my, my mom, <laughs> something about, um, you know, uh, criminals breaking into your house and, you know, stealing your identity or whatever. Um, usually it's criminal activity that would be used in that uh, scenario. When you're dealing with more liberal people, you can manufacture outrage about something that maybe was not as outrageous. And that drives people and motivates them towards a decision. The cudgel that you're going to see in 2020, to give you a little bit of a preview, is the bail reform bill, and you're already seeing it. One of the oh, reasons yeah. the bail reform bill is in the news right now is because there is an overt marketing campaign by people who are trying to lessen the impact of the presidential year turnout for Democrats to paint Democrats as uh, people who love criminals, you know, people who don't want you to be safe and people who want to, you know, release people who could be dangerous to you without any acknowledgement for the fact that most people who receive bail are out in three days. Yeah. And I think, you know, we want to go back to the messaging thing real quick because, you know, and I want to bring this back to transgender issues. We look around conservative states right now and, you know, it's the, it's the sound bites, you know, transgender athletes are competing and cheating girls of this transgender people, um, especially children, you know, are getting this severe medical treatment that can really do damage to them and they should wait till 18. But that's not even near truth. But 
in this day and age, and we've asked this of other guests, but in this day of age, those headlines and those sound bites pass a sniff test mm -hmm. for a lot of people. So when they hear them on the local radio news, Fox News, or when they're scrolling through their Facebook feed, that passes a sniff test. Mm -hmm. How how can Democrats combat that? It's so hard when people don't pay attention, when people scroll past something and never click on it. And I think that until you directly link someone's attention to the fact that what they read maybe is not the entire story, and it requires some responsibility on that person to at least click the article that they're going to comment on. And so many people don't do that. It's, it's I don't so even know what to do where I'm like, I can't help you if you didn't click on it. But how do you, but how do you combat that confirmation bias? You know, and I think, and I don't, I mean, do you, do, do you target conservative people and say transgender healthcare saves children's lives period. Mm -hmm. And, you know, do you run that type of, you know, messaging and counter, I mean, I don't know how you do it in this age because I think, you know, Penny and I, you know, in what we look for, we're a long form interview show. We dive deep into these interviews. You know, this isn't the shallow end of the pool. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get more people into the deep end? I don't know. I'm going to tell a story because I'm a nerd. About... Please tell a story. <laughs> this, 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 um, you're in the right company. So um, Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy wrote a um, very, uh, uh, wrote a very difficult uh Supreme Court decision in um, Bowers v. Hardwick that made some uh, decisions that negatively affected the LGBT community. I'm going to summarize here so as not to get into it. And then in Lawrence v. Texas, overturned those decisions where basically he said in Bowers v. Hardwick that uh, states could make laws limiting uh, the kinds of sexual conduct that same-sex people might have together that heterosexual people may not have together. And then in Lawrence v. Texas said, no, you can't because there's a due process problem there and an equal protection problem there, actually. We'll get into the fact that, that we, who made the equal protection argument, neither here nor there. But what happened to Justice Kennedy in between Bowers and Lawrence? And the answer is he found out one of his clerks was gay. He realized that he knew someone and cared for someone and that that person was a kind of person he a had human. an opinion about. And for many people, they need to have a personal interaction with someone to be like, oh, you're just a person. You're not a caricature. You're not a monster. Um, I just last night went out uh, to see Jojo Rabbit with my husband. Did you see Jojo Rabbit? Last night? Yes, last night at, at Pittsburgh. The, oh, Little Hi. Theater. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> I need to go no, to the she's not your girlfriend, Amy. I need to go to the nine thirty-five. I ran into another <laughs> friend there, so hey. I had to put my kid to bed. It got we the little timing wasn't working out. Um, but in Jojo Rabbit, it's about a Nazi youth who falls in love with a Jewish girl because he spent enough time with her and realized she didn't have horns and scales, and that's a real thing. You know, that's uh, seeing that someone is human and that they are just like you is really the best way of teaching people empathy. Yeah, that's exactly what Amy and I both do. I, that's, that's the bottom line of why I do the shows that I do is to humanize the fact that, you know, that, that, that I am just a person. Amy is just a person. We are, we are neither more or less than anybody else. And we are the fact cooler that people, than other people though. And that's probably Well, that's really just because of who we are, not because of our gender. But no, it's it's very important that we do that. And it's it's also freaking exhausting mm -hmm. to do it all the time, too. And, and 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 responding to this stuff all the time as well. You know, the the bathroom stuff is like we want to protect our kids. So we don't want transgenders in the in the locker room. I said, well, how do you feel about coaches? in the locker room because if you show me one instance where someone claims to be transgender who is sexually assaulting someone which i don't think has even happened i'll show you a thousand where it's been coaches are you against coaches are you against priests stepfathers brothers uncles football players you know all these people are sexually assaulting and there's no uprising about that but somebody who is actually living their authentic life goes into a bathroom to use a bathroom and all of a sudden we're, we're demonized and that has to stop. It's and conflating, then, uh, 
gender identity with sexual dysfunction. And Thank you. a thing that I always say is, so we have people who are convicted child molesters. They have to register. They have to tell everyone in their neighborhood that they moved in there. They can't live within a certain distance of a school, but they can go to McDonald's and use the bathroom because they're human beings who need to use the bathroom. We don't have a rule that keeps convicted, registered child molesters out of public bathrooms. They're a far bigger threat than a person who looks male wearing a dress. What yeah. is your concern really? It, it's all about power and it's all about the use of power. Yeah, and you know, one thing that I've noticed too, our bathroom culture is insane here in this country. And, you know, and I think, you know, if you make it to Albany or, you know, you know, I brought this up with Rachel, you know, why not make all single seat bathrooms that are private that have a lock gender neutral? I agree. Why don't, why don't we start moving away from this? You know, I was in England, you know, a couple of months ago. And, you know, we're at bars and clubs and other places, and they had true gender-neutral bathrooms. You go in, you shut the door, the doors go from floor to ceiling, no gaps. You go in, you do your business, you walk out, you wash your hands, and you leave. Well, I mean, can we just talk about Americans and the fact that our bathroom stalls don't go all the way to the floor? That's a whole separate <laughs> issue. Why do we do that? I don't understand. It's you should do stand-up. And don't goodness. get me started about the toilet paper. <laughs> she can read a room, too. It's a whole scene. Yes, she can. The fact, whenever I go to, to Europe, I'm like, they must think we're crazy people when they come here. And you can They're check to see if someone's on the toilet by like looking through the crack in the door. It's well, a crazy thing. Well, but also I've <laughs> also been in bathrooms overseas where there's urinals and there's women walking by that can see the people peeing. It's, mm -hmm. it's just nobody, the way different cultures view the body and view sex mm -hmm. and all this stuff is, it's not this, it's not, it's mm -hmm. just... It's just, it's just part of life. That's just from the puritanical era is what it is. It's, it's puritanical and, and it's weird and it makes sex and it makes gender weird in this country and it doesn't need to be. And I'm really glad that you're trying to, to move people away that. I'm really glad for anybody who is willing to reframe the discussion and move things forward. I'm really glad that you're doing this. Uh, where are you in the polls right now when you're in this? You oh, we don't poll this early. Um, no, polls, no, polls are not really polls, useful until deeper into the election right now, especially because I don't have a primary in June. Um, and it used to be, and this is the first year, or rather last year was the first year we did primaries in June. Primaries used to be in September. That's crazy. Wow. But yeah, a, a primary, rather a, a poll doesn't really have a ton of value until the summer, unless you're polling things like uh, name ID and um, issues. Um, because people don't, especially for state races, go ask the majority of people if they know who their assembly person is at all. It's kind of a rule of thumb that you don't reference your opponent's name. But I found if I said I was running against Rich Funky, people went, oh, great. And I, <laughs> I had to say his name and it helped me because it helped people orient themselves to the seat. And it's harder with Mark Johns because people don't know him like they know Senator Funky. I know someone who's, you know, lived in Webster for 20 years. Mark Johns was a Webster town board person before he's the assembly person, and they have no idea who he is. I just got a letter from him. He, yeah, I mean. Because I, I registered to vote in the district, so mm -hmm. that's the only reason why I could know his name. I got some kind of recycling flyer, but also, like, I see him. <laughs> so, like, more than other people, <laughs> I run into him. You're like, hey, it's you again. <laughs> I gotta say, you know, he's actually very sweet. <laughs> did you recycle the recycling flyer? I did. I'm a very good recycler. Very good. Yes. So let me let me ask you a quick question. And so, you know, Jen Lunsford's running again. Hopefully we'll have you on closer to the election if your schedule permits. But, you know, why, why you know, give us the, the one minute elevator speech on why Jen, Jen Lunsford this year. We need to have regular people who live the lives of the people in this district in at the table in Albany. And in the 135th, we haven't had someone in the majority in over a decade. And the reason having someone in the majority matters is because when funding decisions are made for the district, they are made with the majority in mind first. And that means in the assembly, Democrats. So party politics aside, the reality is, is that electing a Democrat matters. I am a working mom. I am a homeowner. I am a attorney with 10 years of experience helping people in this district deal with some of the most difficult times in their lives. And I have the right skills and experience to advocate for the people of the 135th in Albany and make sure that we have a seat at the table, something that we've desperately needed. I'm so glad you came on 
And I'm so glad we had a chance to talk to you. And I do want you to come back. And I just want to have, like start swapping stories about going to concerts in high school. I think that's what you do. I think I think that's what we should do our next podcast, Amy. Uh, next series of podcasts. We just like have have people in who are like very important people and just talk about how much they screwed up in high school and college oh, that would and, be and the mistakes so much. that they made. Oh, oh, I was such a that could be the that could be the podcast. This the mistakes we made could be the oh, podcast. Oh, would you come on that, Jen? I was such a nerd. It would be so lame. The mistakes <laughs> I made would be like you'd be like, you're the lamest person I've ever met. <laughs> I, I just was because I applied for graduate school recently. I was just looking at my college, <laughs> my undergraduate transcripts. I'm like, what the hell did I do for six years? Uh, yeah, and that's like I was I graduated in the top ten percent of my class, and I was like oh, in all the honor society. Humble brag, humble brag. I'm like, calling I, right now. I was in the gifted and talented program in sixth grade, and I did and extra like homework. Yeah, I know. I'm you're such a dork. You're remarkably well well adjusted for being gift labeled gifted and talented. A, yeah, it's all right. So real quick, I have one final question. Then, so we're gonna go around. We're gonna start with Penny. Um, we'll go to Jen and then me since I'm asking the question, but what were your first concerts, Penny? My first concert was Foghat and Peter Frampton. Wow. Yeah, I know, I'm old. Uh, Frampton Comes Alive. It was actually part of the tour that he did when that album came out. I was following Peter Frampton before that. And then I dropped it because he was just too damn popular. Was he on social media then? There was no <laughs> social... Social media was Reader's Digest. Really, that's all it was. I, you know, there was no such thing. I was that. And then the uh, the third person on there was Gary Williams, the Dream Weaver. Wow. And that was, he sucked. <laughs> but but Foghat was really good. Ah. So that was my very first. Okay. okay, Jen, what was your first concert? I went to see Green Day on the Insomniac Tour. And an oh Albany-based group so called the River Rats opened for them. And I tell the kids now, they're like, I had to go outside in the dead of night and wait at a music store in the cold for it to open so that I could buy the tickets so I could get on the floor. And they handed me a piece of paper that was like a real ticket <laughs> that I had to give to a person and I had to not lose them for five months. That was oh always hard. Yes. So... You it's ready? amazing how that's why we do transformation, how fast things start. I one time I'll get we'll get to you, Amy, but one time I went to like one of these one of the very last uh non-self-serve uh gas pumps, and I knew what to do, but there was a woman that came there and she spent five minutes walking around looking for where to put the card. And I had one over there and go, No, you gotta go and give the guy in the room the money. And she's like, Really? <laughs> yeah, that's what we used to do all the time. Yeah. So oh, yours. All right. 1979, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Oh, my God. <laughs> Island. <Lame -o. laughs> Islands in the stream. Oh, my God. That is what we are. Yep. That was an amazing. That was like, that was like, you know, coward of the county, gambler. Yeah, you know when to hold them, Amy, and you know when to fold them. <laughs> That's right. So Jen Lunsford, it's been wonderful having you on. I want to have you come back just to chat. So maybe after you become get elected and you're home, let's let's have you on and catch up on how things are in Albany and how things are going for you personally. Wonderful. I'd be happy to do so. Thank you. All right. Thanks. And we'll be right back with more Transformation Thursday and wrap this show up in about 30 seconds or so. If you'd like to support Transformation Thursday, you can do so in the following ways. On Facebook, like the Transformation Thursday podcast. To support us financially, you can do so by going to our Patreon page by typing www.transformationthursday.com into your browser of choice. On Spotify, Google Podcasts, and or Apple Podcasts, please subscribe to Transformation Thursday. And on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and write us a short review. It's free, and it really helps to get Transformation Thursday out to a broader audience. Finally, Transformation Thursday is copyrighted material, all rights reserved, 2019. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I am Amy Stevens. My pronouns are she, her. That was one fantastic interview, Penny, with the wonderful Jen Lunsford. Um, a lot to take out of that, but I think you and I are kind of hitting on some similar points here with our takeaways tonight. So we'll start yeah. with you. My big one was the healthcare issue. It's it's such a an important issue in our country. It is such uh, a, a relief to hear people talking about and acknowledging 
that healthcare is an issue. It is a gigantic drain, one of the two biggest drains on families, healthcare and college education. I'm glad oh, that also, also daycare. Daycare, yeah. That's yeah, the the family issues, family leave, that's another one. These are issues that are no-brainers in the rest of the developed world, uh, what's known as first world countries, but for us here in the United States, these for some reason are considered to be unworkable because they're going to be socialists or something, but it's not. And I love the fact that she is a lawyer with a history and an understanding about uh, healthcare law and insurance and all these things. So that makes her such a great ally. I'm a little bit, I mean, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that the, that the Republicans can come up against that they've, They've been flying around railing against it for what twelve years now, and they still have longer. Come up with anything. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, in the in the mid nineties, Hillary Clinton was working on something with the Clinton administration on health care. Yeah. So I mean, this this is this is multi generational at this point. Yeah, and even uh, Barack Obama, he took the health care system that was devised by his opponent. Uh-huh. who was a Republican, and the Republicans were still against it. So that's all they are is against it. So it's great to have people in the office who are moving towards a more sustainable health care plan. And that was my takeaway. Well, and you look at health care, you made a point about, you know, take, you know, Obama took Obamacare and modeled it after Mitt Romney's plan in Massachusetts. And that's where he took that from. But part of that was, and I mean, I mean, and this is genius on the Republicans because nobody remembers this. The reason why there are such high deductible plans and HSAs in Obamacare is because the Republicans wanted them in there. And so now we are saddled with I I have I had health insurance that I was paying nearly 10 percent of my gross in. And I still couldn't afford to use it because I had an eleven thousand dollar family deductible. Let that sit in. $11,000 family deductible. That means doctor visits, surgeons, x-rays, anything was out of my pocket first. It's it's crazy. I'm glad that that's being addressed. I'm glad that there's somebody who's sane and sensible who is running for for the office. Well, yeah, health insurance isn't health care. It's literally, it's lining somebody else's pocket. Yeah, it's, it's, shouldn't be it shouldn't be profit making no and that's and that's the fall down on in american healthcare right now well and but everybody bows at the altar of you know capitalism but that's another thing and you know and that's i think this is a good segue into my takeaway from this and it's going to stay on this healthcare track is and i mentioned this in the interview with jen is biz, businesses are saddled with this healthcare health insurance responsibility and if they didn't have to they wouldn't want to manage this stuff think about everything involved with human resources that goes into this thing at bigger medium sized companies small sized companies think about the entrepreneurs out there who are not taking that chance because they are concerned about health insurance and what that would do for their family if they didn't have it so we are losing innovation here in this country because we do not have a universal health care system that takes care of basic needs for everybody. And like I know my back. Like you should be <laughs> taking care of my back. And my face, for God's sakes, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I would I would give them your face over my back. But no, no, seriously, it's it's you it, everything that you said is correct. Yeah, and it's and it's it's just absolutely crazy, you know. And so, so at least in Canada, the United Kingdom, and I know conservatives love to rail against socialized medicine. It's not without issues. It's not without its problems. But at least in those countries and other European countries and industrialized nations that have socialized medicine, at least there's a base level of care that's available for you just for being alive in that country. Now, no system is perfect. No. And we're not asking for a perfect system. We're just asking for a system that's not going to kill the people that it's supposed to be helping. Yeah, it's funny because if you remember one of the arguments in Obamacare against Obamacare was death panels. So right now, health insurance companies are your death panels instead of a government bureaucrat. So either way, somebody's making a choice. What's that? And it's killing me. I thought that was my face. It's worse than my back. 
Well, that too, and my back. Lots of things killing me. So I think I'm just going to end up staying here in my house and dying, Amy. And then you can, if I'm not there next Sunday, you'll know why. Well, that's still an undisclosed location, right? Absolutely. You know what next so, Sunday is? Next Sunday is, isn't that your birthday weekend? No, 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 What's no, it? no. Super Bowl. The, Super Bowl. That's the ball and foot thing. Oh, the foot and ball thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I I don't follow football. I'm I don't. I, this is kind of weird. I was thinking about this tonight. Where Where is the Super Bowl this year? Uh, someplace in the United States. Oh, okay. I think it's in Florida. I, I, I could care less. Yeah, me too. Which is really weird. Yeah. Because I used to be very sports-oriented. Sports, 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 sports. <laughs> On that really weird word, I think we should wrap up for tonight, Amy. If you're interested in supporting us and hearing more goofy shit like you heard tonight, where can they go, Amy? www.transformationthursday.com will take you to our Patreon page and subscription levels start at only, at, I should say, only $1 a month. And if you don't want to type the W's, you don't have to. But do it for me. Okay, do it for Amy. But for now, this has been a great Transformation Thursday, and I can't wait to talk to you all next week. Good night, Amy. Good night, Penny. Good night, everybody.